Good morning, everyone. I'm Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Growing up, I was in a home that maybe was a little bit different than what a lot of people experienced. There weren't many boundaries for me. There wasn't a lot of discipline. There weren't a whole lot of constraints. So I had a lot of freedom to be able to explore all kinds of things and really to do a lot of things and to say a lot of things that a lot of other people my age did not have the opportunity or the ability to do. And it, it wasn't like it was a bad home. It was a great home. We had a, a, loving, uh, a, a loving, caring home. My mom was a single mom of four kids. She worked so hard to take care of all of us. She worked multiple jobs. She got her college degree when she was 50. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. You worked really hard, and I appreciate it a lot. Um, and I appreciated the freedom as a child to try all sorts of things, to experiment with all sorts of things in life. But when I came to faith and when I started reading the Bible in my 20s and I encountered all of this language in the Bible about obedience and the need to obey, I kind of bristled up a little bit. I wasn't used to that. I didn't there wasn't a whole lot of talk like that in my home growing up. You know, there weren't the, the boundaries and the, and the discipline. So this need to obey, who needs to obey? Dogs obey. I don't need to obey anyone. Uh, I don't know. Maybe your experience was a little bit different when you were growing up. Uh, maybe for some of you, you grew up in a home where maybe you had um, Christian parents and you went to church and there were a lot of boundaries around. There was a lot of discipline and you know, there was a lot of structure in your home. And maybe there was even that talk of obedience. And there was a high expectation for you to obey and to follow the rules and to do what was right and to kind of stay in your lane and in your boundaries. And so then for you now, maybe when you read the Bible and you see language about obedience, you kind of bristle up too for a different reason, but it still comes from your upbringing where you kind of feel like, ah, I was hurt by that. This brings up some wounds for me. This brings up things in my past that I didn't really like. And so I don't really, I don't really want anything to do with that language of obedience. Isn't it interesting how these two different upbringings, and I know I'm kind of making some assumptions, but I, I think there are a lot of people who've had those experiences. Those two different upbringings kind of give us the same result when we look at words of obedience. And really, I think more than anything else, this just kind of um, reveals our humanity. It kind of shows aspects of our humanity where regardless of the situation, we have this resistance to obedience. This actually, it, it reminds me of a story uh, or just situations from my early marriage. Um, Steph, who, if you know her, she's just such a sweet and wonderful person and not a pushy person at all. But early on in our marriage, if I ever got this sense that she was telling me to do something, I would kind of tense up. And frequently in our early marriage, I would say these words, I don't tell you what to do. You don't tell me what to do. Now, I, I probably just lost some respect from some of you here. And honestly, there's no use pretending any of us are perfect. I don't say that to her anymore. Hopefully I've grown up and I've matured a little bit. But even if it was a situation where I 
you know, she was saying something that I knew I needed to do. I just didn't want to be told to do anything. And I still don't. There's just something in me that resists it. It isn't joyful. It isn't, it isn't a willful act. And I don't think that's just me. I think that you maybe experience a lot of that too, perhaps. And I think a lot of humanity really experiences that this resistance to do what we're told. So with that in mind, I'm going to need you to obey and open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. I'm just joking. I would never, ever talk to you like that in real life. So please, just take it as a joke. I wish you were here to laugh with me, honestly, because it would make this a whole lot more comfortable. The only people I have here with me right now are paper cutouts of my family. I mean, they look like they're pretty pleased with my jokes right now, but they are just paper cutouts, so I don't know. Philippians chapter 2, are you there? If you are, it's completely by your own choice. I haven't told you, made you do anything that you don't want to do. Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because he heard, because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves 
could not give. We've been in this series in Philippians called A New Way of Living. And we've been going through the book of Philippians in conjunction with another book by Dr. Nijay Gupta called Reading Philippians, A Theological Introduction. Now, Nijay is actually going to be here next week preaching for us through Philippians chapter 3. So if you can suffer through me for this week, just hang tight because there's hope on the horizon for something better that is coming. Now, so far, we've been seeing in Philippians that Paul is trying to change our minds. If we can change our minds, we will change how we live. And Paul wants us to see how, see ourselves as God sees us, as holy, set apart. We're saints set apart um, for, the new, for a new way of living. We explored central, uh, Paul's central challenge to the le- in the letter. Okay, there is a slide in there. Yes, the book slide will be right there. Okay. So at what, should I start like just before that and then you'll run it kind of however it needs to run? Okay, sorry. Okay. <clears throat> I, I, but I also need to basically stand pretty close to where I was. It doesn't make too much. Okay. Um, should I just go? Okay. Um, we've been in our series on Philippians called A New Way of Living. And we've been going through Philippians in conjunction with another book by Dr. Nijay Gupta called Reading Philippians, A Theological Introduction. Now, Nijay is actually going to be here with us next week to preach through a fe- uh, Philippians. Ah. Okay, I just need to gather myself for a moment here. I got it. I got it. I just got it. That clock, though, is going to be thrown off now. Oh, well. <coughs> you ready? We've been going through this series in Philippians called A New Way of Living. And we've been doing it in conjunction with a book by Dr. Nijay Gupta called Reading Philippians, A Theological Introduction. Now Nijay is actually going to be here with us next week preaching through Philippians chapter 3. So if you can suffer through me for today, just hang tight. There's something better on the horizon for you. So far as we've been going through Philippians, we've seen that Paul is trying to change our minds. If we can change our minds, we will change how we live. Paul wants us to see ourselves as God sees us, as saints, holy ones. We're set apart for this new way of living. We explored Paul's central challenge in the letter, that we would live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good announcement. It's the announcement about God's reign and rule and restoration in Jesus the King. Jesus sits on the throne right now. It was through his death and his resurrection that he was inaugurated as the King. And that death and resurrection offers for everyone life, a new life that they can enter into. 
But the gospel is about way more than your salvation or my salvation. It's about the restoration of the entire world. Paul wants us to live as gospel citizens. And we've seen that we need to take on the mindset of Jesus. It's a mindset that's not about ascending greatness, but it's about descending greatness. It's not about going higher, but it's about going lower. And last week, John gave us this great challenge as he presented to us the Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2, that challenge of how low can you go? How low can you go? So now after this this great poetic work in the early part of Philippians 2, where we have the Christ hymn, we come right now then to our passage today. And there are several bits in here that might be a little off-putting to us. Paul shifts gears, and after all the wonderful poetry of the Christ hymn, he says to the Philippians, obey. And we might read that, and we're like, okay, I don't know. Well, I'll keep reading a little bit. And it says, work out your salvation. And we look at that, and we're like, I don't know about that either. And we decide, all right, we're going to go a little bit further. And it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Some of you, you may be ready to put down your Bibles right now and just be done with it. This is kind of a place where we have a choice. We have a choice to make. Are we going to look at that, not like it, decide that we are going to put down our Bibles and be done with it? Or are we going to look at it and think, oh, that's kind of funny, not give it too much thought, though, and and just kind of keep on going with it? Or are we going to make the choice to kind of see what the tension is here and wrestle with it a little bit, I think when we, when we wrestle with it a little bit, we come up with some better answers. It kind of brings to my mind that image of Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord in Genesis and the, the better circumstances that came from that. Now, some of these words may not cause all of you a whole lot of trouble, but I think for, for several people, they probably do. I mean, obedience, which we already talked about, touches on that instinct of not wanting to be told what to do. Besides, Jesus said, you know, that his yoke was easy and his burden was light. And then there's the idea of work and that being in connection with salvation. For us Protestants, that really kind of throws us for a loop. Are we saved by grace through faith so that no one can boast? kind of work do I need to do? And, and, and what happens if I don't do that work? And then there's fear and trembling. Come on. What am I supposed to do? Cower before God? I mean, isn't he, isn't he my loving father? Maybe some of you, you're just like, I don't want that. I don't want any part of it. I think part of the challenge here comes when we try to understand God and our relationship to him in a really singular way. God is this and he's not that. Because he is this way, he can't 
be that way as well. You know, we want all of the, the best aspects of what we, what we can think of God being to be true, but we don't so much want these things that are less appealing about him to be true. Or maybe we think that those less appealing things really are the true things, and, and that's where we kind of walk away from God. The reality is that God is far more complex than I understand. And so my relationship with him is far more complex as well. The gospel, the good announcement about God's reign and restoration in Jesus is more complex than I really understand. I mean, it was for the Jews. They didn't, they didn't see it when it came. They were waiting for the Messiah, but it wasn't quite what they expected. Now, some of you may push back on that a little bit, and you're like, well, but the gospel, I mean, like part of the beauty of it is that it's so simple and so accessible to people. But, but even with that, there's tension. I mean, yes, the gospel is so simple and so accessible to anybody. And yet, I feel like it's so profound that I'm never going to fully understand its depth. We have to live in the tension of that. So then to go back to the language, the troublesome phrases in our passage here, yes, we need to obey and we need to work out our salvation. Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. He provides rest for the weary and he gives freely to little children. And yet he demands our whole life. Paul wrote in Romans, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? God's grace is abundantly there, and yet it isn't an open door to do whatever we want, whenever we want. And is my relationship with God one of fear and trembling? Well, I think, you know, early on in my relationship with God, that was probably a bit more of it. And there are still some aspects of that now. I mean, we're talking about God here. We're talking about the one who created everything. And we're talking about Jesus to whom every knee will bow on heaven and earth. That's what we just saw last week in the Christ hymn just a little bit earlier in Philippians. He's an authority unlike anybody else. It was said of him from the disciples, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And yet... The Apostle John wrote, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So do I fear God? Well, I certainly respect who he is, and that creates an incredible awe for me. But do I fear punishment from God? No. I don't fear punishment from God because his perfect love has cast out 
that fear. It's like the song, Amazing Grace, there's that line, "'Twas grace who taught, uh, that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Such a beautiful picture of this tension that we're talking about. And these are the tensions that we live in when we live a life with God. I take the time to say all of that because I don't want these phrases in this passage to cause any distance for you from God. But at the same time, I want you to see that they're true and valid within a greater context of understanding of who God is and the nature of our relationship with him. And those two things understanding those things, who God is and the nature of our relationship to him determines so much of how we perceive obedience. The result of being able to live in that tension is a new way of living, characterized by joyful obedience to the king. Not painful obedience, Not reluctant obedience, not compulsory obedience, but willing and joyful obedience. And that's at the core of what this passage is about. Because of what Paul has already written about who God is and the unstoppable gospel, he now says, in light of that, obey. Without the understanding of who God is, and how he has worked in my life, obedience is unpleasant. That's the natural human way of obedience. It's reluctant. This is a picture of my son, Caleb. He's our third child, and he's three years old, which means he is the perfect age for an illustration on obedience. Because a three-year-old child knows enough to understand what he should do and how he should obey in most basic circumstances. But he's also clever enough to be reluctant about it and to try and wiggle around it in any way that he can. So if I say, Caleb, can you come here please? And maybe he'll say no or he'll ignore me. And then I use my dad tone, Caleb, I need you to come here right now, please. And then he does something like this. I'm coming. Can't get mad at me for not coming. I'm coming. But he knows he's not really doing it the way that he should be doing that. Caleb, he doesn't always have joy when he obeys. Frankly, neither do I. But when I understand who I am obeying and why, it becomes a joyful obedience. Who we obey, who we're putting ourselves under, makes all the difference. I think most of us understand that intuitively. Who can you think of in your life that is someone that is worthy of being followed? Someone that you would listen to, that you would take direction from? I used to be uh, a manager for Safeway. Uh, A lot of that time, actually, I was an assistant manager. I worked in a lot of different stores in Oregon and Northern California and 
And one store in particular, the manager who was above me, he was such a sweet, kind man. And he was always smiling and chuckling. He loved to laugh at everything until you crossed the line. And then he would snap. He would make threats. He would throw things. He would yell. He would take away responsibilities. And then just like that, I get my snapper to work there, he would go back to being sweet and jovial and kind and happy until the next time. People like that are not easy to follow. There's certainly no desire to follow. It's just kind of this need. You have to do it. And maybe you've got experiences like that in your life. You can picture someone that you just know is not someone you want to take direction from. Would you rather obey someone who is out for himself or someone who is looking out for the interests of others? Would you rather follow someone who's out to acquire as much as they can? Or would you rather follow someone who is willing to give of all he has for others? Who's Paul pointing us to here? He's pointing us to Jesus. Paul is directing the Philippians and directing us to follow and obey the one who was described last week, who was described in the passage just before this, Jesus, the Son of God, who humbled himself, lowered himself, gave of himself, sacrificed himself for our benefit. He didn't seek his own. He went to the lowest rung to pull others up higher. We joyfully offer obedience to Jesus because he's worthy and good. Because he isn't a tyrant. Because he isn't cruel. He's the highest authority, but he's also the best authority. He wants what's good and life-giving and best for you. He's not out to hurt you. He's not out to watch you fail. He's not going to snap. He'll only ask you what will uh, ask of you what will be good for you and those around you. Now, that may not always be what you want in the moment, and it may not always be easy, but it is good. Who do we obey? We obey a humble king who is out for our good. And for us to understand that can shift our whole perspective on obedience. What we do when we obey isn't based on the need to follow some rules that maybe we don't even understand or we don't know when we're going to cross the line. But it's based on having an encounter with God and understanding that he wants to be close to us, that he wants to form us and shape us into his people. And this connects with the why of obeying as well. Why do we obey? Our obedience comes about because it's actually God who is doing this work in us. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which is to obey. 
he's, he's just carrying on that same, same thought. He says, um, just, as you have con- uh, just as you have obeyed, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is, continue to obey. Continue to live in such a way that is in line with your salvation. And this goes right back to what Paul said in chapter 1 that John highlighted as this key verse throughout the whole letter in Philippians 1.27. He says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's saying the same thing now in just a different way. To work out your salvation is to carry out the life of someone who has been saved. Why do we obey? We obey because we're free to obey. Because God has already taken care of all of the hard parts. We're not working for our salvation. We're not working toward our salvation. We are working out of our salvation. That's already there. Do that work. But then in the same breath... Paul says right there in verse 13, he says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good pleasure. The Greek word for act here is the exact same word as to work. So it's basically like saying, go ahead and work because God is at work in you to work. This is like the tension that I mentioned before. We're told to do something, to work the life of someone who has been saved. But it's God who is actually doing the work in us. It requires us to move forward, but it starts with God's movement in our own lives. In fact, it starts before there's any action on our part at all. Why do we obey? We obey because God is working in us a desire to do so. Paul says, it's God who works in you to will and to act. To will something is to desire it, to want it. So God is at work in us to change our desires so that we want to do the working out, the living out of our salvation. He's participating with us. He's active in that whole process with us. And that is a work for God. It's not an instantaneous thing that we experience. And for some of us, it requires more work. But this is all part of our process of transformation into the image of Christ. God is the one doing the work, and he's doing that work internally in us with our desires in order to bring about this working out of outward obedience. And we don't have much hope of doing the things that God wants us to do without him actually working that into us himself. But we do play a part in it as well. You know, we have to offer up ourselves for God to do that work in us. Paul wrote in Romans, 
He says uh, in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, a new mindset, a new perspective. Then you will be able to test and approve. You'll be able to consider what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We offer ourselves to God, and then God transforms our wills and our desires to be in alignment with his, so that we will live the life that is worthy of the gospel. I guess this really leaves us with the question now of how. How do we obey? What does it look like to live this gospel life, to work out our salvation? I just have two things to offer for you here. One, we work out our salvation together. Everything in the book of Philippians is geared toward the the community of the church. Terms like fellowship, participation, sharing are woven throughout the letter from beginning to end. And in verse 14 here, Paul says, do everything, that is obey, work out your salvation, do everything without grumbling or arguing. We'll see in chapter four of the letter that there's this conflict that's happening in the Philippian church. And these terms seem to be addressing that conflict. Working out your salvation is not an isolated practice of holiness, but it involves the whole church doing what Paul said in chapter 2, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. It doesn't take place, working out our salvation doesn't take place in a monastery. Not that I have any problems with monasteries. I I enjoy my quiet time there. But it takes place hand in hand, arm in arm, as we follow Jesus together. Maybe today, that just look, ah, can we make a cut there? Okay, we probably have to for the sound anyway, I would imagine. Okay. Okay, we are on the last page of the notes. Um, I could, how do we obey? Where to, you know what we could do? Um, This one here, text the Romans 12, is fairly long. We could make that a full screen and cover, just cover me up there. Yeah. And then... How far does that take us back? Not like a minute, okay. yeah. maybe. That's fine. Let's do that. You want to do that? That works for you. That's fine with me, yeah.
Okay, I keep stepping on my cord here too. <clears throat> okay, are we, I gotta figure out, do you want me to start before that Romans quote then or after? Okay. Read the last sentence of the quote. Okay. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We offer ourselves to God, and then God transforms our wills, our desires, to come into alignment with his so that we can live a life that is worthy of the gospel. I guess the question now is, how? How do we obey? What does it look like to live a life, the, this gospel life where we are working out our salvation? And I just have a couple of things to offer you, just two. The first one, we work out our salvation together. Everything in Philippians is geared toward the church community. Uh, terms like fellowship, sharing, participation are woven throughout the whole letter from beginning to end. It's an important theme in the book. And here in verse 14, Paul says, right after this command to obey, do everything, that is obey, work out your salvation without grumbling or arguing. We'll see in chapter four of the letter that there's a conflict that's happening in the Philippian church. And these terms seem to be addressing that conflict. So the obedience relates directly to these interpersonal relationships. Working out our salvation is not an isolated experience of holiness, but it involves the whole church doing what Paul has already said earlier in the letter, like in chapter two, earlier in chapter two, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Working out our salvation doesn't take place in a monastery. Not that I have any problems with a monastery. I enjoy quiet time there occasionally but it takes place hand in hand and arm in arm as we follow Jesus together. I don't know what that looks like today. Maybe it's like proper Zoom etiquette or something like that, but there's some way in which we still do this together as the church. And honestly, how we relate to other people is a primary indicator of whether we're walking in obedience with Jesus. We don't do it perfectly. We all need to understand that, but it is an indicator for us. And Paul gives us these examples too of these two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus, those who are living this out. They're described as having concern for others, looking out for the interests of Jesus, working for the gospel, and worthy of honor. They are the examples for the Philippians and for us of what it looks like to work out your salvation with others. A second thing on how we obey, we set ourselves up 
to live a life of obedience. We set ourselves up for that life. Following Jesus and working out our salvation happens one choice at a time. Dallas Willard has this great quote, and honestly, I can't remember what book it's in, but just read everything that he's ever written, and you'll find it eventually, and it'll be worth your time. But he says, choice is where sin dwells. And let me tell you, I have messed up a lot of those choices in my life. But again, I don't, I don't fear punishment from God in that. I shouldn't even really fear disappointment from God in, when I make a, a poor choice because I'm in Christ, which means that God views me. He views you as he views his son, Jesus. And yet we are called to obedience. And the choices that I make actually set a trajectory for me of the future choices that I'm going to make. So the further down the road I go in bad habits, the stronger and often the more severe those habits are going to become in my life. And similarly, the more choices I make toward good practices and good habits, the stronger those are going to become in my life. I'm setting myself up for future choices. This is where spiritual rhythms and disciplines, there's another term that may rub some of us the wrong way, but this is where those rhythms and those disciplines can be a great benefit for us because they provide the environment and the framework that allow us to make better choices when we're faced with individual circumstances. They set us up for success. They train us in times when we're not making a choice so that when that critical time of choice comes, we are prepared for it. We've practiced for it. Okay, you ready? I'm going to channel my inner John Rosensteel right now, and I'm going to use a sports analogy for you, even though there hasn't been a whole lot of sports going on. But if you know anything about sports, you know how important the practice of the sport is. Because when the game is on the line, you want to be able to make the shot. So you practice that free throw. You practice it again, and you practice it again, and you keep doing it over and over and over again because you know that games are won or lost based on those free throws. And you know when the time comes and you're on the line and that game is on the line, you want to make that shot. It's the same thing with the practices in our spiritual life. We want to prepare ourselves well and set ourselves up well for when we're faced with a critical moment of decision, we want to be able to make the right choice. We want to be able to make the right call. We want to be able to work out our salvation and obey in those moments. So this would be my biggest challenge to you. After you've kind of worked through the tension of the language in this passage, And once you get to a place where you understand that it is good to follow and obey 
Jesus. Think through what are the areas in your life where you need to work out the salvation that's already been given and provided for you. And then think through a rhythm that you can implement in your life that's just going to help you set yourself up well in making those choices of obedience. And give yourself plenty of grace in it. You probably won't mess it up any worse than I have in my own life. God is there working in your life. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And that invitation is always open for us to step further into that life of Christ, that life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Our loving Father, the depths of your love are so much greater than I could possibly understand. And you've demonstrated it most most dramatically in Jesus through his death and through his resurrection. But then you also offer us his life that we could be found in him, that you would view us as you view your own son, constantly pouring out your love and your grace to us. And yet, continually calling us into a life of obedience and working out that salvation, forming us further into the image of your son, Jesus. I pray, God, that you would give us an openness through your spirit to the work that your spirit is doing in our lives in that regard. Form us more into the image of your son. Form your church here as represented in New Hope form us further into that gospel community that is a bright, shining light to everyone around, that you would be glorified in that, Lord. We love you. We come to you because we are in the name of Jesus. Amen.